Okay, have a good rest of the Friday and a weekend, and happy early Father's Days to all the dads. Bye. When I'm recording this, and since today we reviewed this past week's DT passages, I actually wanted to record a podcast about Philippians two,、uh, since I didn't get to do that earlier in the week. When I reflected on Philippians two, some of these verses seemed really daunting to obey. For example, verse three: "Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." This verse seems almost impossible to follow as human beings. But if you think about it, it is. It is doable because it's not like we're being told to deny reality. The text is not saying, for example, consider others more talented than you, consider others to be more intelligent than you, because the truth is that you might be more talented than this other person, or more athletic than this other person, more intelligent than this other person, etc. The text is not saying to tell yourself otherwise than what is objectively true. That's not what it's saying. It says, "In humility, consider others more significant than yourselves." The original word that's translated "significant" here means prominence to exceed. So it means that we consider this person to be more prominent than myself, exceeding in value than myself. Now, I think we have our own experiences when we have done this in the past in short episodes. For example, when we go to Cambodia for mission trips and we're ministering to kids in the remote villages, let's say, objectively, that child growing up in poverty in this third world country is not more educated than you, not more talented than you, and certainly not wealthier than you. And yet, in that moment, you make that child more significant than you. So you serve that child. You might shampoo that child's. Um, hair that has not been washed for weeks, and you might take out the lice with the lice comb. All of those things, and we gladly do that when we're on these mission trips. So we're able to do this for a short spurt. But what we're being told to do in verse three is to not just do this for one or two weeks in the summer when we're on a mission trip, but to do this as a way of life. Now in verse four it says, "Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Again, verse four is almost impossible to do as a human being. How do we not look out for our own interests when that seems hardwired into us, and that's how we live from day one? And so it's so instinctive for us to look out for number one because it certainly looks like everybody else is looking out for number one as well. And verse four, in some way, acknowledges that's just true of people. But let's look carefully at what Apostle Paul is telling us. Let each of you look. Not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, Apostle Paul is saying, "Look, you are all experts at looking out for your own interests already. You've been doing this all your life. Well, now apply that expertise to others as well, and look out for their interests." Now, stepping back, verse three and four does seem impossible to really obey, at least day in and day out. So I think in response, a lot of times what we end up doing is we do the mental assent thing when it comes to these verses and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that I should live like this. It would be nice if I live like this, but in reality, we think no one truly lives like this. But then in the rest of Philippians two, Apostle Paul gives three real life examples of people who did live like this: Timothy, Epaphroditus, and of course Jesus. 
And Paul is too humble, I think, but he could have mentioned his own life as a fourth example. And he sort of implies this in verse 22 when he describes Timothy as a son following in the footsteps of his father. So both Timothy and Epaphroditus are cited in Philippians 2 as living examples of people who lived out verses 3 and 4. In verse 20, Timothy is described as someone who genuinely is concerned for the welfare of others and seeks the interests of Jesus Christ and not his own. In verse 25 through 30, we learn about Epaphroditus. He is described as someone who nearly died for the work of Christ. And even though he was gravely ill at one point, he was distressed that the Philippian church had heard that he was gravely ill and he was worried about how they were worried about him. And in all of this, there's no mention of him being worried about himself. Amazing. And of course, Jesus is the ultimate example and standard of someone who lived out verses 3 and 4. He is our greatest inspiration to try to live like verses 3 and 4. It's the Jesus we see in the Chosen TV series, healing people all day long and being completely exhausted and worn out by the end of the day so that he barely says goodnight to his disciples and then just collapses into bed. It's Jesus who at a grave danger and risk to his own safety heals that paralytic at the pool of Bethesda, even knowing later on that this paralytic would not stand up for Jesus when he's questioned by the religious leaders. And of course, it's Jesus' example that we're given in verses 6 through 8, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because Jesus did this, I am saved, I am forgiven, and I have eternal life. So it's not like there is this dotted line connection between what Jesus did and how I got saved. No, it's a direct connection. It's a solid black line. And if Jesus insisted on looking out for number one, then today... I would be living a hopeless, helpless life, dead and enslaved to my sins, with nothing to look forward to, but receiving just condemnation for my sins one day. I would be bound for hell, and that would be totally fair, totally just. But because Jesus sacrificed himself and put my welfare above his own, now there's no room for me being stingy or selfish or protective with my own life. The least that I can do is to try to emulate Christ's example. And I see that in the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus and Apostle Paul. Now, these are not comic book figures. It's easy to make a selfless, heroic person like Iron Man if he's just a fictional character. But these were real people who had real worries about their own lives, their family members, maybe their wife and children as well. And I'm sure that they must have had their fair share of worries, fears, concern about their physical safety, about their finances, about just getting enough food to eat, about their future well-being. Now, skipping down to verse 9, we read these words. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The therefore in verse 9 is tied to verses 6 through 8 that preceded verse 9. 
in verse 9 turns the values of this world upside down. It's kind of like that switched price tags example in Max Lucado's No Wonder They Call Him the Savior book. We look out for number one because in our culture, doing so leads to position, status, money, influence, success being made much of by others. In other words, we think that's the path to personal exaltation. But then God does this grand reversal thing, like a cosmic judo move. Jesus died on a cross. Dying on the cross was not only physical torture, but also considered the most humiliating way to die, becoming the object of everybody's contempt and derision. As the ESV Study Bible Notes puts it, it's the, quote, absolute destruction of a person. God takes the person who lowered himself to the lowest place possible and then exalts Jesus to the highest name, the name that is above every other name. So it's a plot twist that no one would have imagined. And yet, when we see God do this, it's surprising and not surprising at the same time. There's a part of us that is stunned by what God did and part of us that goes, of course, God would do this. This has all the telltale signs of God. This smacks of God. And when we read Genesis, Exodus, and God's long-suffering with rebellious and grumbling Israelites, when we read Hosea, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Jonah, and sees God's heart for sinful mankind, we're not surprised by the cross. There were clues all throughout Old Testament that God would one day do this. And the fact that now we get to live like this, following in the example and footsteps of Jesus, it's a real privilege indeed to live like this. Finally, I want to just mention in verse 12, it talks about work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is what it means to work out our salvation. We Christians are at our best when we live like this, following in the example of our Lord Jesus. Okay, have a good rest of the Friday and a weekend, and happy early Father's Days to all the dads. Bye.